in the book of Acts. Um, if you recall, last week we looked at chapter 12, uh, Peter and his ministry to the centurion, and now we're looking at the, the passages either side of chapter 12. Before we look uh, more closely at this passage, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we know that when we come to the Bible uh, to truly understand it and to truly hear you speaking to us through it today, we can't just use our minds. We also need the help of your Holy Spirit to personally hear your voice. And we pray that that would be the case for each of us here this morning. As we reflect, we reflect together on this historical letter of Acts, you would bring home to us the truths that are therein and help us to see how that should encourage us on life's journey now to a faithful and joyful trust in the Lord Jesus Christ all our days. Amen. Back in 2013, uh, the Atlantic magazine ran an article entitled, What Day Most Changed the Course of History? Uh, what day would you pick? Well, here are some of the answers given by various eminent people. Firstly, the day the driver of Franz Ferdinand's carriage took a wrong turn leading to the Archduke's being shot and two world wars. Another suggestion, the day Gutenberg finished his wooden printing press. Or another suggestion, the day in 1983 when Michael Jackson first performed the moonwalk on TV. I kid you not. Well, in our passage today, we come to a day which changed the course of history, certainly church history and indeed our history. It's a foundational moment both in the book of Acts and in the salvation history of the whole Bible. It witnesses the founding of the first Gentile church and the start of the global mission to the Gentiles. And this is a pivotal point in history. Now, I'm not aware of any of us here today being from a Jewish background. If you are, welcome. It's good to have you here. But the reality is that most of us, if not all, are Gentiles, and we are part of the Gentile church. And the events we're looking at today in Acts account for our existence today. So let me give you a brief roadmap of where we're going to go this morning. We're going to consider these events at three levels, uh, starting with the big picture and then progressively narrowing down the scope. So firstly, we will start with the big picture, the genesis of the Gentile church and the Gentile mission. And then secondly, we're going to narrow down a bit and look at this first Gentile church in Antioch because we're going to see it was a vibrant, healthy church. And we're going to reflect on what that means for us today because we see in that church what we can call the hallmarks of a healthy church. And finally, we're going to zoom the lens in on an individual, Barnabas, who is the son of encouragement. And we'll, be, we'll consider the encouragement of being an encourager. So uh, here's a roadmap. The genesis, of the genesis of the Gentiles, the hallmark of health, and the encouragement of an encourager. That's where we're going. So firstly then, uh, we see here the establishment of something incredibly significant. The first Gentile church, and indeed the start of the, Gentiles, the mission to the Gentiles. Now, a, a bit of background. Uh, before the risen Lord Jesus goes back to heaven, 
he gives his Jewish disciples his mission statements. Remember that? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says to them this, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And now, some of this would have seemed alien to the ears of these first Jewish Christians, as we've been seeing in previous weeks. They were steeped in centuries of prejudice. And they had a distorted theology which told them that God favored them but had no concern for the non-Jewish peoples of the world, the Gentiles. And they had forgotten, hadn't they, that God's covenant promises made to Abraham, which founded their nation, also had the Gentiles in view. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12 and see those pivotal and foundational words which God made and promises to Abraham. He said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. But God goes on to say, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And now that's, this is what is now happening in the start of the Gentile mission. But to these first Christians, these Jewish Christians, the blessing of the Messiah Jesus was just for Jews in their mind, not for Gentiles. So when Jesus says, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the earth, well, firstly, yeah, they'd been quite comfortable with the Jerusalem and Judea bit. Uh, those were the Jewish territories. They'd have started to twitch a little bit about being Christ's witnesses in Samaria, the Samaritans, of course, were half-Jews who had intermarried uh, with Gentiles and were now considered impure Jews. But yes, at a stretch, maybe they could witness in Samaria. But to be witnesses to the end of the earth, well, the only way they could have understood that initially was that surely Christ was saying that they should be witnesses to the Jews scattered over the world to the ends of the earth. But no, that is not what Christ meant. And so slowly, God has been chipping away at their flinty prejudice. As we've seen, God had challenged Peter's tunnel vision through a vision of clean and unclean animals. And God had subsequently granted his spirit to the seeking Gentile centurion and to his household. And then finally, finally, the penny drops for the apostles. They finally get it. And that was the last verse of our passage in Acts last week, Acts 11, verse 18. So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. And with that, chapter 11 now picks up the historical narrative where it was left off back in chapter 8. If you recall back in chapter 8, uh, it was charting the progress there of the scattering of the Christians as they fled persecution in Jerusalem. Uh, now we have a a map here which should show us, so initially, uh, they, the Christians, once they started experiencing persecution in Jerusalem, fled into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. Well, that was as far as they got. But now in chapter 11, the ripples radiating out from Jerusalem have reached the territories beyond this, at the ends of the earth. So some of these scattered Christians have now reached what's called Phoenicia, which is this western seaboard area here. And they've also reached Cyprus and here it is, this great city, Antioch. 
Uh, it's interesting, if um, we go back to the Jewish historian Josephus, he rated Antioch the third most important city in the Roman Empire in terms of population and prosperity. And it's in Antioch that God has done and does a wonderful work. Some of these scattered itinerant evangelists were only witnessing to Jews, but others went to Antioch and shared the gospel with non-Jews, with Greeks. And the result was dramatic. Chapter 11, verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. You see, prior to this, there had been isolated instances of Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. Think about it. We've got the Ethiopian eunuch uh, under Philip. Uh, We've got the centurion and his household through Peter. But now, the trickle becomes a torrent. And when news filters back to the Christian leadership in Jerusalem, they obviously want to understand what on earth's going on out there. So they dispatch their emissary, Barnabas, on a fact-finding mission. And when he arrives at Antioch, he finds, as it says, evidence of the grace of God at work. There's a huge number of Gentile believers. Indeed, there is a church now in Antioch, a Gentile church. And this was the first. And the locals had come up with a nickname for them. For the first time, these people are called Christians. It's interesting because it shows that people now realized that this, this was not just another Jewish sect. This was something different. This was something far more significant. You see, it indicates that people realize these are now a large enough group of people to warrant identification in their own right. They are Christians, followers of the Christ. Now Barnabas, he's a godly man, and he realizes that these new Christians desperately need feeding. They need good Bible teaching if they're to spiritually thrive and survive. And he knows just the man for the job, uh, the very bright and now soundly converted Jewish Pharisee Saul. So off he goes. He goes on a search and locate mission. And as a result, Saul joins the staff at the Antioch International Church. And he stays there teaching for a year. Imagine sitting under the ministry of one of the greatest New Testament teachers. What would you give to have been there then? Wouldn't have that been a privilege to have Paul as your senior pastor for a whole year? But then the time arrives under God's hand for Saul, also Paul, a renamed Paul, and Barnabas to move on. God has an even more important work for them to start. Chapter 13, verse 2. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so you see, the first missionary team to the Gentiles is hatched and dispatched. And so we see, this is a turning point in the book of Acts. And I have here a little summary diagram of Acts. You see, the first seven chapters of Acts relates to the mission to primarily Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, Acts chapter 8 to 12 is the mission to, in Judea and Samaria. But then, Acts 13, where we now are in Antioch, starts and kicks off the mission to the Gentiles proper. And that is what now is the concern 
of the rest of the book of Acts. So this is a turning point in the history of the church and in the history of salvation history. So uh, we've started with the big picture, the genesis of the Gentile church. Now let's narrow the scope a little bit and let's look more closely at this first Gentile church at Antioch. And all the evidence is that it was a vibrant, bustling, healthy church. And in particular, uh, four, four hallmarks of health are evident. And indeed, they can act as a checklist for the health of our own church here in Cherrybrook today. Uh, firstly, it was a church where the ministry of the word was central. Uh, Barnabas knew that this new church would wither and without spiritual food. So what does he do? He sets out intentionally to seek out the best Bible teacher he can find. And a healthy church is therefore constantly having its belief and its behavior reshaped by God's word, by the gospel. It's that vital ongoing process of what we call sanctification. At the increasing conformity of our minds and our actions to the mind and the action of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question then is, are we keeping the ministry of God's word central to all we do, both privately and corporately together in Cherrybrook? Uh, the second hallmark of health that we see here is generosity. A famine is predicted. The Christians back in Judea are identified as being particularly vulnerable. And so this Gentile church organizes a collection amongst themselves. And we're told that each helped those in need in as much as they were able to do. So you see, therefore, a healthy church is generous in its support of gospel ministry and those in need. And that is a timely reminder as we as a church seek to make ends meet at a particularly different, difficult time financially. Each gave as he or she was able to do. The third hallmark of a healthy church is prayerfulness. We're only given a little glimpse of their prayer lives, but it is revealing. So the Holy Spirit instructs them to send Barnabas and Saul on a special mission. They obey, but they don't just obey. What do they do after they have received the marching orders. They fast and they pray. You see, their ministry endeavors were undergirded with prayer. And here again, this is a timely reminder for us as we seek to forge a deeper prayer life together as a church. As a church, we want to be used by God in our community. As a church, we want to reach out and to grow. And that is great and that's essential, but where does it all start? It has to start with prayer. Uh, last week, I commended to you our two monthly church prayer meetings, one on a Saturday, one on a Sunday before the service. Please, again, can I encourage you to try to get to at least one of these prayer meetings each month. It will be such an encouragement to us all to be engaged together in this most important aspect of our church life together, 
prayerfulness. And the fourth hallmark of a healthy church is what I call missionality. Uh, it seems the church's leadership consisted at that time of, of five people. We're told of uh, Simeon, uh, Lucius, Manaean, Barnabas, and Saul. And yet two of them are told to go on a mission. Now, to lose their senior teaching elder and two-fifths of their leadership team, that would have been tough for them. That would have been a considerable sacrifice for the church at Antioch. And yet, what do they do? In response to the Spirit's prompting, they send Saul and Barnabas on their way with their blessing. You see, they were missional. They had a heart for the gospel to go out to the ends of the earth, even at great cost to themselves. They didn't allow themselves to become insular and inward-looking and looking just to their own interests. And so, we today need to remain missional. We today need to be constantly asking ourselves, how? How can we do it? How can we connect with the people around us? How can we build bridges with those who do not yet trust in Christ, who God has placed in the sphere of our lives? We've had in the past this initiative um, to eat with a neighbor. And we're going to put that up on the agenda again for the month of May. Month of May is going to be our Eat with a Neighbor month, when we each endeavor to, in some way, convene something socially with a work colleague, a friend, a family member, a neighbor who doesn't yet know Christ, or indeed a whole family, and to do something socially with them with a view to building bridges. Our month of May is Eat with a Neighbor month. So, these are hallmarks of health, the hallmarks of a healthy church. To prioritize the ministry of the word, to be generous in our ministry giving, to be prayerful both individually and corporately together, and to be missional, to be praying for and seeking to share the gospel in creative and new ways. So here's a good question for each of us to ask ourselves in the quietness of our own hearts. Which of these four essentials would it be good for me to work on? In which area am I weakest? How can I grow stronger in that area? And what does that practically look like? So we've looked at the big picture. Uh, we've then narrowed it down a little bit. We've looked at the church in Antioch. Finally, uh, let's narrow down the scope further and look at this remarkable individual, Barnabas. Uh, he's a fascinating character, and he comes onto the stage at various points in the book of Acts. Uh, we're first introduced to Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4. Uh, he was one of the earliest Jewish converts. He was a member of the fledgling Christian movement that sprang up after Pentecost. Uh, his actual name was Joseph. However, he was renamed because of his dominance characteristic, encouragement. Uh, in response to the needs within the church, those believers who had more sold what they had to help those believers who had less. In the early church, they lived out a radical generosity. 
And Barnabas gets a particular mention in this regard. Let me take you back to Acts chapter 4, verse 34. Uh, there were no needy persons among them. For from, the time, from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. You see? It's obvious from this that was, that was one of the ways that he encouraged others, encouraged ministry with his money and with his assets. He used what he had to help and to encourage others. But it's interesting. It doesn't stop there. We also see he was the sort of person who sought to see the best in people. He was the sort of person who was guided more by a person's potential than their previous failings. He was the sort of person to take risks to encourage the realization of that potential in people. Uh, Saul initially, of course, was the arch enemy of the church. Uh, he spearheaded the persecution of the Christians. And yet, after his dramatic conversion, he was then left in somewhat of a limbo. He's now a Christian, but the Christians wanted nothing to do with him. They don't trust him. And yet, who is it who boldly steps out and who mediates and who intervenes? It is Barnabas, the encourager. It is Barnabas who offers Saul the hand of friendship. And it's Barnabas who gets alongside him and brings him to the other Christians. It's Barnabas who acts as a mediator to bring the former persecutor and the persecuted together. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 26. When he, that is Saul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journeys had seen the Lord and what the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Wonderful, wonderful work that Barnabas did. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, years later, who was it who strategically linked the church at Antioch with its most gifted Bible teacher? Here again, it was Barnabas the encourager. And what an encouragement Saul then was to those Christians at Antioch. But it doesn't stop there. In due course, Saul, later renamed Paul, would become the apostle to spearhead the mission to the Gentiles. But who was Paul's trusted right-hand man on his missionary journeys? You've guessed it by now. It was Barnabas, the encourager. So you see, Barnabas was a key player in God's purposes it was Barnabas who was powerfully used in both big and small ways. And what was it that enabled him to be such a power for good? It was this spirit of encouragement that he had. Let's bring it to ourselves today. 
can you imagine what our church would be like if we were all Barnabases? Wouldn't that be utterly amazing? Now, I appreciate that this seems to be a particular gifting that he had, but then again, it is not beyond any of us to be an encourager. Okay, uh, imagine that there are a spectrum of temperaments. At the one end are those individuals for whom the glass is always half empty and never half full, right at this end. But on the other end of the spectrum are the Barnabases of this world. Now, temperament-wise, we are all somewhere on this spectrum. But the point is this. We don't have to stay there. Wherever we are, we can move along that spectrum towards being more of a Barnabas. Because, you see, it's both a decision of the will and a work of the Spirit. And we all need Barnabases in our lives. And believe me, we all need Barnabases in our lives churches. We desperately need people who will listen to us. We need people who will affirm us and spur us on to be our best selves. We need people who will look beyond our obvious and often distressing faults. Don't we need people who will stimulate us to discover our real potential? We need people who are not put off by the mutterings of others people who don't allow themselves to be colored by our pathetic past record. We need people who listen to us deeply with respect and without judgment. And we need people who are always looking for that little spark of encouragement that will make the difference. Why not determine to be an encourager of others? To lift others up rather than to put them down. Be ready with a word of praise, a gesture of affirmation, even a smile of encouragement. It's something we do in our own strength, but not just in our own strength. It's a decision of the will, but it's also a work of the Spirit. Look at how Barnabas is described back in Acts chapter 11, verse 24. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Do you see? It's a decision of the will, but it's also a work of the Spirit. So why don't we each, with the Spirit's help, resolve to be more of a Barnabas, a son or a daughter of encouragement, to be a power of good in our church, in the lives of others, and in our society? You see, God may use us to change the course of history. We may be the Sunday school teacher of another Billy Graham for the next generation. We do not know. Or God may use us to change the course of somebody's history. We don't know which. But each is a privilege. But to do that, we need the empowering of God's Spirit. So let's pray for that now, for God's outpouring on us, His continual outpouring, and His continuing filling of us with His Spirit to His glory. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, there are many encouragements we've seen today from your word as we look back into this era of church history, a vibrant church living out their faith and trust in Christ before you and in each other's lives. 
a vibrant individual, uh, Barnabas, who was an encouragement to all those he had contact with. Please, we pray, may we be more like that church in Antioch as a church together. May we be more like that individual Barnabas, a son or a daughter of encouragement, encouraging others and being used by you in your purposes in individuals' lives, on the smaller canvas of individuals' lives' history, but also on the bigger canvas, maybe, of the church's history. Please, we pray, use us to your ends and keep filling us with your spirit, we pray, to a deeper level, so that we do that with joy and a great heart. We ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.